3.30 in the afternoon. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover with Javelin Richards. Cover to cover, Javelin's Bistro. It is Wednesday. I'm glad to be back with you on this afternoon. And today I'm going to use poetic license, change it up a bit. I won't be talking about someone who's written a novel or there's a film or some other theater piece. This is going to go back to the old tradition of story. And I want to know the story of medicine. And I met uh, Stephen Chen. He's an MD at the medical, he's a medical director at Haywood Wellness and one of the ambulatory clinics in the Alameda Health System. And his uh, areas of interest include integrative medicine. When I met him a couple years ago, he was a new father of twins of about a year. And what I was most impressed about is the stories that he was telling me uh, on regards to the clinic that he is a part of and the importance of people in that equation and how to navigate people in, wor- in their world and in his world and how to integrate those two. And so today we're going to talk about what is art and medicine and what does that look like for him and I thought this would be a particular wonderful way to do that in the space that we are in people as we uh, listen to this administration talk about uh, the the healthcare system and what that's going to look like and then what does medicine look like for us and our families and then also witnessing in Stephen when I first met him and then today with him in a studio there, there is no barrier between him and I, and which is what I think that as human beings we all need to experience a sort of safe, wonderful space no matter what we bring to the table. Whatever our profession is, we bring that open energy so that we can understand each other. And so he as a physician, whatever his back, background is, he's able to do that, uh, at least when I've met him and saw him interact with his staff and some of the patients while I was visiting him a couple of years ago. So we're going to do all tradition here and talk about art and medicine and everything else that he'd like to share with you, our listening audience. So hello, Stephen, and welcome to the program. Good afternoon. Thank you, Javelin. Yes. So let's you let's talk a little bit about even before you were born, because you're a son of immigrants, and the story of medicine began before you were even born and about the choices and what your family wanted for you. If you could tell us that history, that story. Sure. Thank you. Great, great question. So I am Taiwanese-American and second generation. So I come from a family of immigrants from the nation of Taiwan. It's a contested nation, and it's a contested history. And there is an influence on medicine. Uh, back in the day, it's been an occupied place, uh, you know, from 18, late 1800s to mid 1945. Now, 47 is under Japanese rule, and then from uh, 49 on, kind of with the Chinese rule. And so. At the time, so many people were cut down, in a sense. Uh, they weren't given the chance to go into politics or to go into education or law because that was a threatened, a threatening group um, for the society at the time. The, the occupiers were not comfortable with Taiwanese people going into those professions. So a safe profession at the time was to go into medicine. And so it, it 
over time became a pathway for Taiwanese people to send their sons, daughters, uh, who may have done well in school, to go into medicine because the other pathways weren't open. And so I know that I'm the first in my family on both sides, my mother and my father, to choose medicine. In a sense, it was chosen for me, and I struggled early on. Is this my choice, their choice? And ultimately, it has become my choice over time. There's many ways I can talk about that. But I recognize the historical reality that guided their preferences and their interests around why medicine, especially as new immigrants in the U.S. And also, as I was beginning to learn about you, being a second-generation you learned some beautiful tools witnessing the navigation of your family that you now incorporate in your practice, watching them navigate the system. Tell us that story. Like what was what was going on for them, which goes on for a lot of immigrants coming to this country? Right. You know, it's a great question in that my father has a Ph.D. in engineering here from Cal. His He came here not knowing much English and, you know, brought a dictionary to engineering classes, worked as a janitor as his first uh, job here. And uh, even to this day, even though he understands English, can write and speak, there's still challenges navigating our healthcare system. So regardless of educational status, there's been that piece. And yet, on the other hand, I have my grandmother or who, who recently passed and she struggled with our healthcare system, uh, taking care of me growing up as a child, and and then and then utilizing the system, not having people who could speak her language, and uh, just seeing patients, my own family members struggle through the healthcare system, regardless of educational status, like my grandfather or my grandmother, who just by language was limited. And uh, the example I give is, I had to give her her diagnosis of cancer, of lung cancer. Um, 10 years ago because there were no doctors that could give her the diagnosis. I had to explain it to her, and I was the grandson, but I was also the only other physician that could. And so that was a challenging experience to have. So that, there's there's all everything in between in terms of navigating. And then my experiences eight years at working at Asian Health Services in Oakland, Chinatown, I mean, that was the story of my family and the story of many families struggling with language, struggling with a discoordinated, uh, unfriendly uh, healthcare system, if you will. It's trying to be a system. And out of that, from what I understand, you decided to, so that you could embrace your patients, took up multiple languages. That's right, right. So I grew up speaking Taiwanese and then, you know, learned English, of course, growing up in this country. My parents sent me to learn Mandarin Chinese when I was a kid, and I rebelled. Didn't enjoy it at all. Didn't want to go on Saturdays to study another language. Uh, in high school, I, in junior high, I picked up German, or I was start trying to learn German. And then in college, I went to South America. And in two months of being in Paraguay, learned more Spanish in those two months than my four years of studying German in school in the U.S. And the, how it relates to medicine is that I trained at UCSF, San Francisco General, in family medicine, and I worked at the refugee clinic. And I thought, hey, I can speak some Spanish, I can speak some Mandarin, but I realized at the time, you know, my skills are still not there. And so after I finished my residency, I took a year off and I 
spend around seven months in Taiwan to work on my Taiwanese as well as my Mandarin to be much more effective in clinical settings, medical settings. Um, and then also spent about four months in Ecuador to work on my Spanish so I could serve uh, Spanish-speaking patients, Taiwanese, Mandarin-speaking patients. So, And what is, what is integrative art and how does that work itself out in Haywood where you're now you're the director of the clinic? Right, so I'm the medical director. Yeah. And so integrative medicine, this is this area of medicine I, that I did additional training in. And it's really not that mystical or strange. It used to be called complementary alternative medicine or holistic medicine. Right now, and I'll, I'll use the definition that we you learned from Andrew Weil, Dr. Andrew Weil and his program at the University of Arizona. Integrative medicine is healing-oriented medicine that is built on the provider-patient trusting relationship that utilizes all forms of medicine that address the mind, that address the body, that address the spirit. And because of my commitments and my work in the safety net settings, I like to add the community. That it's not just the individual mind, body, spirit, but it's also the community. And so that does, it's a lot of words there, but in a sense, how I explain it to folks is I say, you know, it's not just the integrative, it's not just the acupuncture, or it's not just the osteopathic stuff or mindfulness. Uh, that's what most people think of when they think of integrative medicine. Mm. But it's really that patient-centered, healing-oriented piece, and you utilize those methods. You utilize, or one can utilize acupuncture like I do. I can utilize manual medicine from an osteopathic tradition. At Hayward, we've launched a food as medicine program and have trained all the providers to utilize nutrition and food in a 20-minute exam visit uh, to, in, to influence one's health to affect hypertension, to affect diabetes, to affect coronary arterial disease. So it's it's this blend and mix of various traditions and really translating that to the person in front of you. So you so in our imagination right now, you're working with your patients and you're providing with them with integrative medicine within twenty minutes, so you're educating them. How do you imagine that that is going to impact the community in what way so that we can embrace that when they leave and then you have these new ways in which to take care of their life and their family's life. How do you imagine that caring for the community as well? That's a really good question. I think, let me answer it in two ways. One, as an individual doctor or other healthcare provider, we are really influenced only the people who come into the exam room in the four walls of my exam room. But there's a recognition at Alameda Health System and in many health systems that we have to move beyond the four walls and think about the population that we're serving. And so how do we move upstream of those four walls? So uh, patients we know who have diabetes, hypertension, whatnot, are influenced by all these other social determinants of health, bigger than just their diabetes, bigger than just their depression. It may include that they don't have food, that they don't have housing, that they have uh, trauma history. So how do we touch those areas? How do we as a clinic uh, build enough capacity to manage that? And so we have a few programs. And so one of them is, like I said, the, uh, is, is our food as medicine program. And that one's 
where we've changed the mindset of the providers. Most docs don't know anything about nutrition. I got zero training at Stanford on nutrition and how to use it. So we had to go through a mindset change to understand how do I use food in the exam room. How did that come up? Is, is it, this happened with among the staff? So we got a grant, and we brought a team together, and we designed this program. And we said, we got to start in the belly of the beast, if you will. you got to start in medicine. And since we are in a healthcare setting, let's change the mindset of the provider so that they can incorporate food. And then the second piece was, well, it's not enough as adult learners just to hear a lecture, to do an interactive food as medicine training. We had a, we had a chef MD come train us. Uh, we had to have to practice it. You've got to change the mindset. you got to practice it. So how do you practice it? So we created food prescriptions. And then it was like, well... And you call that pharmacy, right? Well, that's the third part. It's that's like, the third so, part. So they got food prescriptions I can give to each patient coming through, but what, I'm, what is this prescription going to? That was the third part. The delivery system was we created a food pharmacy. And I'll say pharmacy for the, the listeners and the audience. It's, it's a play on words. It's F-A-R-M-A-C-Y. So it's a food pharmacy in the clinic, in the exam, in the, in the lobby, and it's connected to Dig Deep Farms, a local farm in, in the Hayward area, uh, for, for folks who have formerly been incarcerated, and they're working the land, and now they work in our clinic selling the produce, and, uh, that was the delivery system. And then the final piece was, well, okay, people have the mindset change, people have food, prescriptions, they have a way to get the food, well, how do they cook? So we created a cooking as medicine series in our demonstration kitchen. We built the clinic to have a kitchen. And so we had a nine-week series on how to teach people how to cook as well as to address their medical conditions. So that's the kind of limited connection to the outside. You were asking, your question earlier was, how does this connect to the community? Well, we have a community element when working with Dig Deep Farmed and formerly incarcerated folks. There is a community connection. There. Yeah, absolutely. As you were sharing that, uh, you're listening to uh, Stephen Chen. He's telling the story of medicine, how he came to medicine, and what that looks like now here on KPFA. So, Stephen, when it, it definitely does, because you have every these components of involvement, and most certainly... The community is impacted by those that are working the, the gardens and bringing the food into the, those are relationship building. How has your community reacted to that? And what has there been any tangible results of that that you as a, your staff have seen and said, ah, this, this really is working? What does that look like? Well, that's a great question because it's about how do we measure our success? Mm-hmm. What are our outcomes? So it's a short grant, nine months, and we're building on it. And one way was to say, well, do people actually take these food prescriptions and use them? So we measured it. We had a, nine, we had a 74% redemption rate. So what that means is if I, you're my patient, Jabla, and I gave you this food prescription and I gave it to 100 people, 74 of them, of the 100, actually went to the food pharmacy and redeemed it. That's higher than patients. That's a higher rate than me giving a pharmaceutical drug to my patients. They don't always fill their meds. So there's one measurement of people actually thought this was helpful. Uh, it's also higher than other places where it's maybe 33% in other clinics that have tried this because we located the food pharmacy in the clinic. It wasn't they had to go to some farmer's market on another weekend. It was in our clinic. So we're, we become a medical home, a hub for the community in a sense that provides, of course, medical care. But we're, we're, we're beginning that dance of how do we incorporate these other elements? How do we incorporate 
these upstream elements, if you will, to healthcare that we know influence the mind, body, spirit, and the community. So on your journey to becoming you in present time, mm. you said there was a moment where you also struggled. Was this your choice or was it the choice of your parents and the history even before them going all the way back to Taiwan? Right. When did you start to realize that this was your choice? Well, I struggled in, in college because I, as I came to college, I got really excited and energized by working on ethnic studies work, Asian American studies, African American studies work. Because at Stanford, I was there for, at Stanford for undergrad. We didn't have any of that. And so I got really involved with other student leaders to organize on that. And I said, well, what, how is this connected to medicine? So I thought maybe I should be doing community organizing or some type of other, other type of work. But then I ended up having to write my, my uh, letter, my personal letter of statement to why I wanted to go to med school. And I still liked the science. I still liked the, the physiology, the human. I liked the human condition. And I thought, well, maybe this is one way. I will still own this medicine, this decision. And yet, even as I went through med school, I struggled. And I, there was a point a few years in when I said, you know what, I'm not sure I want to continue. And, uh, I took some time off, did some silent retreat, kind of mindfulness work, and um, realized, you know, this is, we can do this. I can do this. I'm still going to own it. And it's not just because my parents want it. It's actually I'm choosing this. Um, let me share one piece. Let me go back a little. I had to decide if I was going to go to med school. And I had gotten, I had applied. And I had acceptances. But in my senior year in college, a doctor, happened to be a doctor, Dr. David Hilfiker came and he was talking about uh, caring for patients with AIDS in D.C. at a home called Joseph's House. And this is before Proteus inhibitors, before all these wonderful drugs we had. People were just dying when you had AIDS. Mm -hmm. And I, he offered me a job. He said, you know, why don't you come and work for me for a year? And at that time I said, hmm, do I do that or do I go to med school? And I struggled because my parents really wanted me to go to med school there were some financial questions we were going through. It's a difficult time. And I talked to many people. And in the end, I did choose going to med school and gave up that experience. But in med school, I had other experiences to continue to ground me in my commitments to the community and why I wanted to do medicine. And so it's still working out. You know, I'm, I'm in the community still. I'm still working at Alameda Health System, and we're the safety net. And so that's worked out. So with your Stephen, which I'm talking to Stephen Chen and we're talking about the story of medicine as he has discovered it in his life and the work that he's doing in Hayward uh, and with the community he's serving. And, and actually, as I'm listening to your story, I'm listening to a story of someone who has a science mind or at least attracted uh, to science deeply and who also discovered in your process of education that in in Asian American studies and African American studies began to to hear the story of activism, uh, socialism, and whatever else that came with that, the causes, and that that put you sort of like at a crossroads. And could you combine the two together, and that you somehow are making it work for you now? So, with your science mind, tell us the story of art. And science. How does those two worlds come together, which is what cover to cover mm. is about. But at the same time, I know that the definition of art is as fluid 
as the wind. Right. So tell us, Stephen, the story of art and science, if you've learned it. So the story happens every day in the exam room. And the art to me is a dance. It's a dance with the patient. And the science is, is partially a dance, but less with the patient. And I see the combination as translational. And, and what do I mean by that? Uh, people in academic centers often talk about bench to the bedside and translational medicine being you do test tube studies and you can rapidly bring it to the bedside to the, to the patient and then deliver care, this magical care. I see it as a community health doctor as a little different. I see it as how do I translate the science of medicine and the science of the studies that are coming out into a way that makes sense for this patient right in front of me. And it's a dance. It's a give and take. It's really trying to understand the patient's motivations, what the science says, and blending it. And if I can dance it right with the patient, we get a better outcome. If I'm just pushing dogma and science, and this is what the evidence says, without a regard to what who this patient is in front of me, the patient's going to walk out of that 20-minute exam room exam and do whatever they want. But I have 20 minutes to dance with this patient and to address their priorities, do it in a way that I can blend in some of the science and blend in uh, their motivations, and that's the art. Okay. So I like the analogy that it becomes a dance. And I like it for a couple of reasons. One is that many times that we go to a doctor or healthcare provider, whoever that is, we we go with concerns, mm. right? And so there's a, 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 there's fear involved in that, whether we are conscious of it or not. So let's let's give a pretend diagnosis, right? Give me a patient, a pretend patient. I'll give you I'll give you the the uh, structure of it, and then you give me the dance. So let's try to do the dance. So the person is 32 years old, mm-hmm. and they have. Um, they smoke cigarettes mm-hmm. and they drink soda. These are some of the questions they fill out on sure, the forms. Sure, very common. Mm-hmm. And they are smoke weed. Mm-hmm. Um, they drink, and uh, they've been bouncing around house to house. So technically, according to the system, they're homeless for the most part. They don't have their own, mm-hmm. and they just haven't been feeling well. What is your dance? How do you start that dance? Well, I open the door. I knock on the door. This is basic. I knock on the door and I introduce myself. I introduce myself a few times to say, hey, my name is Dr. Stephen Chen and I'm your healthcare. I'm going to be your doctor moving forward if this works out, if you want me to be your doctor. Um, and I usually start with what, you know, we have some time today for me to get to know you. Um, and I'm going to ask you a lot of questions. But before I go there, what do you hope to get out of today's visit? What's the most important thing you hope when you walk out of this room you got? Because we don't have the full day, but we have some time. And I'm still going to ask you a bunch of questions to help me understand you and know that in our relationship together over time, we'll be able to touch those other things. But what do you? what's your priority? So this is the dance of listening. Mm, absolutely. The dance of listening. You also shared with me that you had a mentor that taught you the dance, or at least his interpretation of the dance so you could tweak it. Can you share that story? Sure. So uh, when I was in undergrad or in medical school, I did uh, an elective rotation called addiction medicine, and it was under Dr. Barry Rosen, 
who's no longer with us. And I was amazed at how he danced with patients. I got to be with him, and he, through all the patient experiences where he saw patients in the hospital, in the outpatient setting, he used a biopsychosocial spiritual model of care. And I would be, in, I remember being in the exam room with him, and he was a master clinician. He trained at Cook County in Chicago, so he knew his physical exam, but he knew the person. He knew that this is a person struggling with addiction, and I would be his sidekick watching him. And he gave me the analogy once of, you know what, I'm with this patient, and I'm right with him. He's talking to the patient and talking to me and saying what's going on. I was like, oh, well, this is interesting. He's like, you know, me and Bob here, whatever the patient's name, we're doing a dance right now. This is West Side Story. This is him and I, our hands are bound, and we have knives, and we're dancing, we're trying to cut and trying to make this work. You know, he's telling, Bob's telling me he loves me right now, but in the same moment, you know, we know that the addiction comes out, and he's not going to like me when I tell him no on this, and I'm watching this, and I'm thinking, wow, this is a master clinician. This is a master who, who gets it. He gets the science. He gets the communication. He gets the human part of connecting with this patient who's struggling. That was this aha moment. Mm. With in the last few minutes that we have, and you see how that moves so quickly. Yeah. Listening to the story of medicine, the way you have have uh, approached it and learned from it from family and the history of it. What do you think about the healthcare system now? Do you? Do you think it should go to the, what is the one care system that the politicians are talking about? I think it's called one health care. Well, I think we are in trouble. Okay. Um, and we've been in trouble for a long time. And so um, I think we, you know, there's different models out there. Uh, there's different models to pay for it, uh, like a single payer model. And that's very popular here in the Bay Area. And something that, in fact, California is trying to adopt. Single payer, that's what single I was thinking pair. of, yes, yes. So I think single payer definitely has its strengths. I think whatever system is structured, we have to be able to support the dance that happens in the exam room. So if you finance single payer with, by cutting out the insurance companies, great. As long as whatever is structured allows for that dance. Because if it just becomes all about standardized care, which I understand is important, but, you know, where everyone's treated the same way, the exact same thing without personalizing it, without having more precision to it, then I think we lose that dance in the art. So how do we, whatever we structure, how do we make it so that moment of connection with the patient and the provider supports healing and that the health clinics and the health systems continue to also support healing even if they're not coming into the exam room? When you're with your patients, your community, this is really a community, how have you seen the way uh, the, your system is structured there? How do you see the, what's the impact on your, the community you work with and your patients? What is the, that you've seen the sort of a consistent pattern? Well, we're, we're, we've always been there as a safety net system, the Alameda Health System. So that's a good thing because, if we weren't here, then people would be dying even quicker and without support. So I'm proud of our system for always standing on that side and re leveraging resources to ensure we're committed to the most underserved. We are going to a period of transformation where we can't just say, just because we serve you and we are the safety net, then 
you just have to wait in line and, you know, things don't work and phone calls don't, you know, phone systems don't work and all the experience side for the patients, we don't pay as much attention to. We actually have to pay attention to that because patients have choice. They can go to Kaiser, they can go to other places. Mm -hmm. And those other health systems may do a better job, at least in some health systems, around that patient experience, making sure it's accessible. Uh, they can call their doc or their provider. They have access to a phone system that's responsive. People call them back. We need to. We can't just say because we are doing it for the poor, therefore, you know that's enough. What you're saying is you need to. They, you listen and you dance with them. You've been listening to Dr. Stephen Chen and the story of medicine, and he just shared that the dance between art and science is listening. Thanks for listening. I've been your host, Javelin, cover to cover. Attention KPFA listeners, our summer fun drive starts Tuesday, July 25th and goes until Friday, August 4th. During this time, we need your help to come down to our phone room and volunteer your time answering calls and taking pledges. No experience is necessary. The phone room opens Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays from 6.30 a.m. to 7 p.m. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 6.30 a.m. to 9 p.m. And on weekends, 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. Snacks, coffee, and tea will be provided. Please visit kpfa.org for more information about volunteering. See you there.